It's the Bits and Pieces podcast. Hello and welcome everybody to Bits and Pieces for January 2023. I'm joined again by my teammate James. Welcome to the show, James. It's been a few months since you were last on. Hi, good to be back. Plenty going on in January, isn't there? We could have made this one about eight hours long, but uh, we won't. <laughs> so you were saying some very long and detailed debates about various things. Yeah, and some big issues. So, oh, it seems ages ago now that the Supreme Court ruling was. It was only in November. It was followed by five hours worth of Westminster debate, which we podcasted as a separate episode. And then the first debate when Holyrood resumed after the Christmas break was on the question of how does Scotland get independence following the Supreme Court ruling. So we've picked three speeches out of that, which cover different aspects. The first is Christine Graham, includes some of the history uh, which not everybody might be aware of. Over the decades, successive UK governments have used every trick in the book to block the Scottish people's right to determine democratically their future. The current examples, the vote in 2014 was once in a generation, there is no demand, and the Scottish Government should focus on the NHS and pressing domestic issues. I'll touch on these as I progress. But I begin in 1979 with a referendum for an assembly. Better Together was in its infancy, but managed the extraordinary pairing of Labour's George Cunningham, introducing the rule that 40% of the electorate had to vote for it to count. The dead and those abstaining were counted as no. In fact, 51% voted for an assembly, but failed the Cunningham rule. And then there was the intervention of Tory peer, Sir Alec Douglas Hume, two weeks before the referendum, promising more for Scotland if it voted no. I know, because I was there. We were also too small, too poor, and contradictory because of oil. We were too greedy. All this, and still a yes vote prevailed against the background of a winter of discontent. Fast forward 20 years and Tory Labour, otherwise known as Better Together, has formalised its partnership and Project Fear is revisited. One of the main planks of the No campaign was a yes vote would throw us out of the EU and of course Labour's Gordon Brown's vow, vote no and Labour would enhance devolution. Ring any bells? Despite all of that, Scotland voted 45% for independence. 24 years since Parliament came into being, in 1999, the SNP MSPs were in minority. We now have 64 and 8 Green MSPs, all standing openly for independence. A majority, the Unionists have 57. At Westminster, there are six Tory MPs, four Liberal Democrats, one Labour, 45 SNP. Yet Westminster blocks even a referendum because according to it, there's no democratic mandate. Well, if ballot box results don't count, what does? Brexit, what a democratic affront that while 62% in Scotland voted remain, that's from Shetland to the borders, we're out. There was no 40% rule then. The argument that the Scottish Government should focus on current pressing domestic issues, which it's doing, is the very reason why the need for independence is pressing. Economic mismanagement from successive UK governments, squandering the oil and gas revenues, Norway saved trillions in the Bank of UK PLC, just a huge international overdraft. Brown's bank collapse, trussonomics, 
Result, the UK has the highest inflation of the G7, leading to the right pay demands we see today. Just in the dark days of 1979, now is the very time when Scotland needs independence. And now I turn to the Supreme Court ruling which only ruled on the limitations of the Scotland Act. I ask you to read McCormick against the Lord Advocate Obiter, where the Lord President Cooper said, the principle of unlimited sovereignty of Parliament is a distinctively English principle which has no counterpart in Scottish constitutional law. I have difficulty seeing why it should have been supposed that the new Parliament of Great Britain must inherit all the peculiar characteristics of the English Parliament, but none of the Scottish Parliament, as if all that happened in 1707 was that the Scottish representatives were admitted to the Parliament of England. That is not what was done. In Scotland, the people are sovereign. Charles is King of Scots, not Scotland. Ask the people, therefore, if they want Scotland to be independent. Give them that referendum. And the reason you're blocking is because they'd say, yes, we want to be independent. That was rousing stuff from Christine Graham, wasn't it? Very impassioned, certainly. And I think quite interesting to have some of that background because 1979, you know, it doesn't seem that long ago to me. Yeah, certainly. I wasn't actually aware of the, uh, the initial referendum there. And it's interesting to know that apparently the same tactics were in play. And our next clip is Michelle Thompson, who I always think is a very, very good speaker. It gives me great pleasure to speak in this debate and add my voice to the just and democratic cause of Scottish independence. This is a belief I've held all my life. Independence is normal. Presiding officer, I can taste how close it is, which is precisely why the unionists in this place get so incoherently angry. The UK is a failing state. Historically, no other state has been so dependent upon imperialism. It's created a culture and a contemporary state characterised by what Tom Nairn called a tribal state of formidable complacency. We can see and hear this tribal complacency on a daily basis. However bad things are, we are told, they could only be worse by doing something different. The UK's very own version of insanity. The entire post-colonial history of the UK is one of consistent decline and democratic failure, with Brexit being the most recent example and eloquently highlighted by the Cabinet Secretary in his remarks. As Oliver Buller put it in his recent book, the UK has become a mere butler to the world with facilitation of corruption, replacing the exploitation of empire. The indignation that's shown when example upon example of successful smaller independent states are mentioned is symptomatic not only of UK complacency, but also betrays a failure of belief in the Scottish people regarding what is possible. This, for me, is a great divide. I choose to believe in what is possible. I choose to believe in the Scottish people. And I choose to believe, like many other small and medium-sized countries, accepting the responsibility and also the agency that will come with independence will be both liberating and enabling. We are now left in the ludicrous position that those devoted to the declining UK state, no matter the cost to Scotland, cannot state what the democratic route to independence is for the Scottish people. 
At the same time as we rightly support the independence of other nations, we're expected to believe that a gathering of mainly English MPs in Westminster should have a permanent veto on Scottish democracy. It's absurd and it's fundamentally anti-democratic. The enduring characteristic of the Scottish independence movement is its commitment to using democratic means. But there are multiple democratic pathways to independence, as the history of the United Nations testifies. There is no statute in international law, nor in any UN Charter, that gives any state the untrammelled right to deny a nation a democratic route to independence. Now, a referendum may seem the simplest, but it's not been the most typical route to achieving independence, and the will of a people can be exercised in many ways. Take the historically significant UN Resolution 435, which paved the way for Namibian independence, which included defining a democratic process leading to an election and not a referendum. Part of that process involved the use of a UN Transition Assistance Group, and perhaps the Cabinet Secretary might wish to consider the Scottish Government taking the initiative to appoint its own Transition Assistance Group, drawing on appropriate expertise beyond Scotland. Presiding Officer, independence is coming, and the democratic voice of the people of Scotland will not be denied. Thank you. So there's some interesting stuff in that, wasn't there? The, the UN motion 435, I think she said. Certainly, in taking more of an active role in it. In fact, when she was first speaking about the sort of idea of complacency and things, what my mind immediately flashed to, there is a key example of that, which you can find on cups and t-shirts and all sorts of things. It is, in fact, the unofficial motto of the UK, which tourism uses that keep calm and carry on thing, oh, yeah. which you can, in other words, d interpret as stay docile, don't question anything. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's on everything. I mean, like, we've had mugs of it, we've had tea towels, t-shirts, everything, and it's ever-present. And, you know, it's even more insidious, that, because that is a motto that came from... I think it was the Second World War, it might have been the First World War, but well, one of yeah. the world wars. And so it's harking back to that Spitfires and Cliffs of Dover. Literally, it's harking back to the tragedy that is the Blitz. Yeah, it's, yeah. we are being bombed, but we are calm and we are carrying on with our day-to-day -day life. But, which is shorthand for British, otherwise English, yeah. otherwise UK. You know, it's all being the same thing, which to us sitting in Scotland wanting something completely different. Well, that's it. It's you know. that we don't want to just keep calm and keep doing everything we've been doing up until now. We actually very much want to take an active role in changing it, yeah. which is what the second part of that speech was more towards, which is we could actually start setting things up whereby we are actively saying, nope, we've got a group for this, we've got a task force, yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's quite interesting when she said that the, there are many alternatives to a referendum, and whilst that's the one that the SNP has chosen, um, that Namibian example where it was an election is starting to sound a lot more relevant to us because that is now with a referendum having been ruled out by both Westminster and the Supreme Court. The plebiscite election is the next thing on the list. Okay, and the, the third of the clips that we've selected from that debate is Neil Gray. This isn't his full speech, but it was the bit where he starts talking about where do we go from here. This is Scotland's national parliament. 
If a mandate cannot be delivered in a Scottish Parliament election, where can it be? And some have raised opinion polling today. Incidentally, six of the last seven polls uh, back to November last year actually show majority support for independence. But no opinion poll can give a mandate to a parliament. Only votes can do that. And I would invite those who would quibble with that or try to speculate about what people in Scotland really want when they elect a parliament to reflect on the consequences of their position for democracy. After all, Polls showed uh, no overwhelming support for independence in 2011 when the UK government accepted this Parliament's mandate to deliver a referendum. No, when it comes to exercising the constitutional right to choose their future, people in Scotland do it in the ballot box, in elections. And, presiding officer, I'm surprised that there is any doubt in this chamber that people in Scotland alone have the right to choose their constitutional future. Right, so actually the question I mainly have for you after that is do you know of any precedents for a plebiscite election? Has it been tried in the past? Has it worked in the past? When you think about it, often elections have got one main thrust. I mean, look at the Brexit election. We even call it the Brexit election back in 2019 when Johnson swept to power on the basis that he would get Brexit done. And that overwhelming man, uh, majority of 80 seats came from a lot of people who traditionally would have voted from other parties, but really wanted Brexit. So that you could say was a plebiscite election in a way. But I think what the intention for the Scottish one would be much more clearly that they would have an agreed statement that all the indie supporting parties would sign up to that all their campaigning material would would reflect this is what it is but the tricky bit in my mind is still how much you get the message out there because it's not something that we've done you know certainly that i can remember any election was billed as a plebiscite election but if you've got traditional dyed in the wool Labour voters, for example, who voted Labour forever, down through the generations. But we know that 40% of them or so support independence. Are they going to go into a booth and vote for another party rather than Labour? Because you're actually asking them, do you want Labour to win more than you want to be independent? Or is independence the most important thing? And we have no way of knowing if they want to vote Labour and yes, which of those two is more important to them, because that's the one they're going to go for. Yeah, I think the thing that I always struggle with with this stuff is that I do agree that, yes, if a lot of people vote for something and if that is clearly defined as meaning a certain thing, that's good. The problem is, is that if we have already established that we're being blocked at every turn, largely undemocratically, by another body, even if we then take this and say, okay, we have proven unanimously that everyone really, really wants this one thing, if we still don't have our hands on any of the controls, is not that not the same as us basically just holding up our red envelope of evidence saying, <laughs> we have the evidence, while some other country goes, ah, well, you see, it needed to be a blue envelope. Well, that is the big unknown quantity. And, and to an extent, it's, it's out with the power of the Scottish government. I mean, they're trying to do things that are within their power, which is have a plebiscite. And I think what they're looking at, if they get a majority, 
for a clearly expressed yes, dissolve the union kind of vote, I think they may well be relying on international pressure coming to bear on Westminster on the grounds that they're ignoring the um, the democratic wishes of the Scots, which has been clearly expressed in a referendum. And it may also be the thing that you need in order to declare independence is a democratic event with a vote in it. Now, it could be then that the next step we say to Westminster, right, do you want to come and negotiate? And if they say no, maybe then the next step is to the international community and say, look, we've got a democratic vote here. It's as good as a referendum. Are you going to recognise it as, as an independent country and see what happens then? But I don't know. They've, they've never come out and said exactly what the next step is. So that probably is the million dollar question that you put your, your finger on there. Interesting to speculate though. It is, it is interesting. So from the Holyrood debate, let's move down the road to that there Westminster, where the anti-democratic laws are still coming thick and fast. So we'll start with Alan Brown, and this is to do with the anti-trade union legislation. Again, just a portion of his speech. We know this is anti-strike legislation. And how do we know this? This is not my words. That's what the Under Secretary for Scotland said at the dispatch box last week at Scottish Questions. He boasted that his government's bringing in anti strike legislation and a rare bout of honesty at the dispatch box. Now, he keeps going on about the minimum ambulance cover, but the reality is this is an attack on millions of public sector workers. Now, the explanatory notes for the bill tell us that this is a manifesto commitment from the Tories about tackling transport strikes. So while they might hide behind that manifesto commitment, that commitment was nothing to do about clamping down the NHSs, about clamping down in teachers. So the claim is about safety. As I said earlier on, the word safety isn't used once in the bill or explanatory notes. The reality is this is an ideological war in unions that the Tories somehow think will curry them favour with the public. It's a misty eye looking back at Margaret Thatcher taking on the NUM, a battle she won but a battle that resulted in the closures of mines, communities devastated and thousands of workers put in the dole. Yep. And we really want to get back to sacking workers and putting them in the dole, because that's what this is all about. Yep. And we know it's an ideological war, because in this period of Tory governments, they've already given us the Trade Union Act in 2016, yep. introducing voting thresholds, yep. and then last year with the legislation that allows employers to hire agency staff to break strikes. Yep. So there's no doubt this government wants to end strikes, which effectively removes the ultimate backstop in, in collective bargaining. Yeah, yeah. Now, this bill facilitates an attack on workers, but also for employers to potentially sue unions for damages. So no wonder it's opposed by the TUC, the STUC, Unison, BMA, RCM, RCN, amongst others. And I certainly support them in opposing this. Yeah. Now, this legislation is nothing more than attacking democracy and attacking the rights of workers to withdraw their labour, and a further attack in devolution. Neither the Scottish or the Welsh governments want this legislation, but yet again it's going to be imposed on the devolved nations. In Scotland, this is further proof that the Westminster straitjacket does us no good at all. We could have had employment and workers' rights devolved, but unfortunately Labour resisted these powers coming to Scotland. But now even the STUC has called for devolution of employment rights uh, to Scotland, so maybe Labour should consider that instead of listening to Gordon Brown's rehash of broken promises. 
One thing that's quite noticeable is the, the Tory media, that of course we're swamped with, is how they've been trying to pit the public against the strikers, as if the strikers weren't members of the public, or, or that members of the public are also striking. You know, it's that sort of, the good guys are the, the poor public who can't get an ambulance and can't get to work, and the big bad strikers are doing this out of badness. You think, no, it's because the entirety of the public, unless they're in the very rich tranche, is suffering from the current cost of living crisis. And so what you've got is people on strike to get a decent living wage for themselves. And also, because the public sector is being cut to the bone because the Tories would rather give the money to bankers, you end up with fundamental concerns about safety. I suppose the right, the right-wing press is what dominates the, the news agent, that's what you see. And it is quite noticeable the way they're trying to cast the strikers as the bad guys and separate them off from the public. Have you noticed that? Certainly, and actually another thing that I think this goes towards is this Tory government's continued attempts to completely insulate themselves from any form of backlash from the public in general because as, as you and I have discussed before this they've basically come out saying we're going to do anti-strike laws and then this is on the back of them coming out and saying we're going to have anti-public protest laws mm. so you have your average person in the public who maybe is working in very unfavorable conditions who goes okay well I'd like to strike government says nope sorry we can't see you, we can't hear you. They go, oh, well, I'm really angry at the government for this. I'd like to protest that. They go, sorry, can't do that, you'll be arrested. Well, in that case, I'd like to vote them out. Have you got ID? <laughs> yeah, no, they are putting up barrier after barrier to both protect and insulate themselves from, yeah, the common person on the street, whilst all the same time saying, oh, this is all for Johnny Lunchpail on the street. Mm. Everything we're doing is for him. We just really don't want to hear from him or get any complaints from him. Okay, and the next one, this is a really short clip, but it absolutely staggered me. It's a question asked about prepayment meters by Kenny McGaskill, and it was answered by Sunak. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The Prime Minister is well aware of the injustice of prepayment meters, not briefly recently because he commented on it earlier in a question, because it's long-standing. Higher tariffs and higher social charges. Why then has he allowed a situation where hundreds of thousands have been forced into that penury at a time when winter is upon us and prices are rocketing and where we face a situation of 8.4 million people facing fuel poverty in April? All he requires to do is to instruct through himself or through a minister, off gem to ensure that there's an equalisation of tariffs between debit and credit, and also that his government takes steps to provide a fund for those who have seen debt arise because of his government's failures. Will he end that manifest injustice of the poor paying most? Yeah, yeah. Well, Mr Speaker, I think the Honourable Gentleman's proposal would also increase bills for many millions of families, so I'm not sure it is the right approach. What he actually said was... No, we're going to carry on making poor people pay a higher tariff for their power because other people, i.e. not poor people, will pay more. So it's okay for poor people to be ground even further and discriminated against with higher tariffs as long as wealthier people aren't negatively affected. 
That's a shocking statement and a shocking illustration of the whole Tory mindset. Agreed. It's just tragic. And he says it in such a, a reasonable voice, but when you listen to what he's saying, it, it is horrific. Okay, now let's cheer ourselves up with Alan Smith. And this is to do with the latest ridiculous Brexity notion that any piece of legislation that has come from the EU, even if it's legislation that we like and that is really useful and that will cause us problems not to have, must be destroyed and is a sunset clause. So by a certain date, it all disappears from the statute books. There are so many minute little laws that you probably don't know are working for you until they go away. Yeah, and thousands and thousands of them. And even the, the government don't know how many there are. So what possible chance is there of catching them? That's and most right. of them they, are laws that they'll replicate with exactly the same thing because they work. It was like they quoted they had a certain amount and then suddenly later on it was revealed, oh, there were 2,000 other laws we <laughs> actually didn't realise we had on the books. The th- it's like the classic thing of the dog chasing the car and it finally catches it. And yeah, no, that's exactly what's happened. The, the government got the thing that it wanted and it, so far all it's really managed to accomplish with that is boasting that it has it. <laughs> <laughs> but if there's one person that you want on your side when you're talking about the EU, it's former MEP Alan Smith. And I've never been more conscious of the difference in worldview between the members of the government benches and my party and my country. We did not see the EU as a prison to leave. We did not see the EU as undemocratic. EU laws were passed in conjunction with the democratically elected UK government and the democratically elected MEPs in the Council. The member talked about the codified basis of EU legislation, and he's right in that in codified jurisdictions, but to enter into the domestic legal framework within these islands, they had to be dealt with via statutory instrument. So so I really don't think that the, the, the starting point of this legislation is correct. Now, we deeply regret, our, our bona fides, we deeply regret leaving the EU in these benches. My country deeply regrets leaving the EU and voted against leaving the EU. Here, here. So the fact that we were taken out against our democratic will in yeah. Scotland. Yeah. The gentleman talks about a democratic deficit. There's a democratic deficit in the UK that should worry the benches opposite far more than the one in the EU. Indeed. And I, I, I see the smirks, as ever. But it's not just us they are demigrating, Mr Deputy Speaker. It's the people of Scotland. Yeah. 72% of the people of Scotland in the last opinion poll want back into the European Union. If Brexit has been such a success that we hear about, the UK economy in 2016 was 90% the size of the German economy. It is now 70% the size of the German economy. That, if anybody would like to prove me wrong in that, these, these are facts. So I accept the democratic mandate that some of the members are talking about. But in terms of where we're coming from with this bill, I hope that our pro-EU sentiment is respected by the members opposite, because it's deeply felt. This is a matter of deep sadness for us and deep anger. So I say that in order to be clear where I'm coming from, but I'm not actually interested in fighting old battles. I'm interested in fighting future ones, and we'll be having plenty of those. But I would say to the members opposite, if you will do this damn silly thing, don't do it in this damn silly way. I do not agree with the premise or intent of this legislation, but it's the content of this legislation that's going to come back to haunt this government really fast, in exactly the same way as so many other mistakes which were harumphed to the rafters in this House came back to haunt the very government that tries to deny that it had anything to do with them. 
Um, he makes some very interesting and thoughtful points, but I would just like to ask him, how then did leaving the European Medicines Agency, how then has that come back to haunt this country, given the fact that we were free to invest in a vaccine, creating a vaccine which has benefited others because we weren't part of it? Well, I'm, I'm glad he mentions that canard that is often quoted as if the absence of the European Medicines Agency. The European Medicines Agency had 700 jobs in London which were lost from, from that. There's a starter. There was also absolutely nothing in the UK's response to COVID that membership or otherwise of that medicines agency hindered. And, and I think it really is important to get that point, get that point on. It's perfectly legitimate to want to leave the EU. It's perfectly legitimate to want to leave the EU Medicines Agency. But let's not claim successes that were predicated on things that they weren't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well so, said. So, so what I find so obje objectionable about this bill, Mr Deputy Speaker, is that it's so unnecessary. I say I'm not interested in fighting old battles. I'm really not. But for the people who wanted to vote leave and take back control of our laws, etc., etc., well, you won. It happened. Get over it. Every single piece. Every single piece. Yeah, they're not so much, Mr. Deputy Speaker, they're not so much bad losers as bad winners. But, Mr. Deputy Speaker, every single law, regulation, standard, however derived via the EU channels over the long history of the UK's involvement in it, is subject to this House, is subject to this government. Right now. Right now. Any legislative instrument that the UK government wants to amend, repeal, bin, whatever, is open to that authority in this House right now. Exactly. So in this bill, I think we have a deeply ideological mistake. Yep. And I would urge colleagues to, to, even at this stage, think hard. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. Now let's move on to the next big stushy that took place in January. The Scottish Government passed the Gender Recognition Act in December. It had cross-party support and should have gone for royal assent in January. But the Secretary of State against Scotland, Alistair Jack, let it be known that he was thinking of applying something which had never before been applied, which was Section 35 of the Scotland Act. To be fair, most of us had never even heard of Section 35 of the Scotland Act the effect of which would be to veto the act that the Scottish Government had just passed. So the First Minister was giving a press conference on the NHS when she was asked a question about the potential for a Section 35 to be brought into play, and this was her immediate response. Thanks, First Minister. Sir Keir Starmer is the latest person to express concerns about the, the Scottish Parliament's gender legislation. Um, Stephen Flynn this morning describing it as an outrage if, if that is blocked. Is it really an outrage if, if people use the established mechanism to try to resolve potential conflict in the law set out in the Scotland Act 1998? Um, yes, I think it would be um, an outrage. Um, you refer to established procedures, of course, in respect of uh, Section 35 of the Scotland Act, a procedure that has not been used in almost a quarter of a century of the uh, the existence of the Scottish Parliament. In my view, uh, there are no grounds to challenge this legislation. It is within the competence of the Scottish Parliament. It doesn't affect the operation of the Equality Act. And it was passed by an overwhelming majority of the Scottish Parliament after very lengthy and very intense scrutiny by MSPs of all parties represented in the Parliament. So if there is a decision to challenge 
then in my view it will be uh, quite simply a political decision and I think it will be uh, using trans people, already one of the most vulnerable stigmatised groups in our society, as a political weapon and I think that will be unconscionable um, and indefensible and really uh, quite disgraceful. There is a bigger issue of principle here and I'll come on to Keir Starmer's comments in this context uh, and that issue of principle is the right of the Scottish Parliament to legislate within its areas of competence and if we see a challenge this week then we will be uh, seeing yet more evidence from this UK government uh, of complete contempt for the Scottish Parliament and for devolution in principle. And I would say to anyone um, who might welcome that because they disagree with this particular piece of legislation, if the UK government is able to normalise action to block legislation democratically passed by the Scottish Parliament within our areas of competence on this issue, then that will embolden them to look to do it on other issues and we will be on a very, very slippery slope indeed. So I think it is that serious and I think the import and significance of this would go beyond the particular subject matter of the legislation. Finally, on this issue on Keir Starmer, you know, I start to wonder, and I'm, I suspect I'm not the only one who starts to wonder if there is anything Keir Starmer is willing to stand up and be counted on in the face of Tory attacks. I don't think the UK needs a pay limitation of this Tory government. It needs an alternative to this Tory government. Uh, but on this particular issue, uh, of course, this is legislation that was scrutinised and voted for by Keir Starmer's own party in the Scottish Parliament. So he'd be showing, uh, if he backed uh, any move by the government to block this, he'd be showing utter contempt uh, for his own uh, Scottish party as well as the Scottish Parliament. So we'll see what happens this week, but there is no justification whatsoever uh, for the action that is being talked about. That speech was made just before the decision had been made to go for the Section 35. It is quite a huge step further, isn't it, in, in Westminster, trying to take the, the powers of the devolved Parliament and, and crush them, because whether or not you agree with the GRR, and it is something of a wedge issue, where there are lots of people with lots of strong feelings about it, but they've taken an action that has never been used before. If they are going to veto Scottish legislation that they don't like or that's different to English legislation, it, it does beg the question, what's the point of devolution then, which I suppose is why they're doing it. But you can see the Sun Acts coming up in the future that are going to be under a lot of threats, such as the recycling, you know, the the legislation to make bottles and cans recycling mandatory. There's also buffer zones for abortion clinics. That that you know that there's there's the Hunting with Dogs Act has just been passed. So there's all sorts of acts that we might, as a whole of Scotland, we might, 100% of us might agree that that's the right thing to do. And somebody in London who doesn't even know what the act really says, which is the impression that Alistair Jack certainly gave, can veto it. It's an astonishing ramping up of the sort of anti-devolution action. Which kind of begs the question, was this sort of a tactical testing of the waters? Because if so, then it was more or less perfectly positioned not only in that they went for a wedge issue, which by its very nature is going to be very, very disruptive and also have inter-party conflicts going on, but yeah, it also means that it is an issue that is 
yeah, somewhat to the side of the usual daily fare, like, you know, economics and, you know, environmental stuff. So it makes almost the perfect test bed for, oh, what if, what if we just say that we don't agree with this one and then mm. cause maximum disruption and then uh, just, just see how that goes. And then, as you say, if it ends up setting a precedent, i.e., okay, well, now it has been used after a quarter of a century or whatever. Well, if they get away with it. If they get away yeah. with it and it's been used after a quarter of a century, then, yeah, what is to stop them then going, ah, well, much like we did back in January, we'd like to stop this from happening and, you know, mm. we've already done it, so, you know, there's there's a precedent for this. Which is what happened with the Seoul Convention. Remember, it wasn't... Seoul Convention was adhered to, you know, so much so that it was even after 2014, apparently enshrined in legislation... But once they chose to breach it, they now routinely breach it. You expect them to breach it. That's mm. why they're just they're imposing legislation that the Scottish government has withheld consent for. So again, yes, it's effectively yeah. establishing a new norm of, well, this is just something we now do. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So. so quite a big step. And as you say, they've chosen the perfect vehicle in that it's one that there is a lot of you know differences of opinion anyway. And it's an emotive one. And it's one they can make huge amounts of press coverage of, which we've, we've been seeing for months. Mark Drakeford also voiced his opinion on this action, of course. And this would also affect the Welsh devolved parliament. On the biggest question of all, I do agree with the leader uh, of Plaid Cymru. I think the UK government's decision uh, to use powers that have never been used in the whole history of devolution is a very dangerous moment. Uh, And I agree with the First Minister of Scotland that this could be a very slippery slope indeed. When the announcement was made, first of all, Alistair Jack didn't seem to know very much about either what was in the GRR bill itself or what the effect of the action was that he was taking. So presumably he's just reading out a paragraph that has been given to him by the lawyers. When he made his statement, which was his choice to make the statement, he didn't have the courtesy of following the normal convention of giving the members of the House a copy of the statement. So they were trying to ask questions about and argue about something they hadn't seen. So Stephen Flynn, the SNP leader at Westminster, asked for and got an urgent debate that afternoon. But it then meant that they were then handed copies of the paper that Jack had been relying on. He didn't get a chance to read it because he was then having to open a debate. So it was a bit of a dog's dinner, really. But having said that, there were some good speeches. We now come to SNP spokesperson Dr Philippa Whitford. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Vetoing this legislation is an unprecedented attack on the Scottish Parliament, which passed the Gender Recognition Reform Bill 86 to 39, including MSPs from every single party. Gender recognition is a devolved policy area, and this does not change the 2010 Equality Act or give any additional rights to those with a certificate. It shortens and simplifies the process and particularly ends the requirement for a psychological diagnosis of gender dysphoria. This is in keeping with the guidance from the World Health Organization and UN 
which recommends change to a legal statutory process based on self-identification. This change has already been made by many countries over the last decade, including neighbours Ireland, Belgium, Denmark. But this government is threatening to end UK acceptance of international certificates. I find it bizarre considering the former Prime Minister, the right honourable member for Maidenhead, suggested a similar proposal in 2017. So can the Secretary of State explain exactly which parts of the Equality Act are changed by this bill? Why did he not raise specific concerns during the two consultations carried out by the Scottish Parliament or in response to the Cabinet Secretary's letter in October, rather than a response that came three days before the final debate on the bill? What modifications is he suggesting to the bill that wouldn't include a return to the outmoded medicalised process? Why is he using one of the most marginalised groups in society to pick a fight with the Scottish Parliament? Is he seriously? Is he seriously, after 300 years of different marriage ages and voting ages, suggesting there can no longer be legal or age differences north and south of the border? And does he recognise that vetoing this bill simply highlights the hollow reality of devolution? So that was very clear from Philippa Whitford, wasn't it? And I think the key point that Alistair Jack clearly didn't grasp was that there is no impact on the Equalities Act and he couldn't explain what he thought the impact might be. And the clear inconsistency with, as she said, there were ample opportunities before now to have said, oh, by the way, just, just when I put my hand up and say I might have a opposition towards this. Mm. And mysteriously, they were completely silent at the time. Yeah. The fact that he, he said a couple of times in the debate that it's to do with we can't have different systems on both sides of the border. Well, that is what devolution is for. Okay, uh, Stuart Hosey is somebody who he's been coming to the fore recently in some debates. He's made some great speeches and here he is again making another one. Stuart Hosey, the Deputy Speaker. Uh, it's true that UK ministers do have the right to interfere uh, under Section 35 in Scottish legislation on the grounds of defence, national security, international obligations, or if the Scottish legislation modifies or has an adverse effect on UK reserved law. That much is clear. But given the Tory chair of the Women and Equalities Committee has said that the GRR legislation quotes does not change the Equalities Act, yeah. and that the Scottish Secretary has been singularly incapable of giving a single example of yeah. where it might. This is not about process, this is a debate on principle. And would it not be better, would it not be better, instead of interfering, instead of engaging in a rather crass culture war, if the Scottish Secretary apologised to trans people, apologised for trampling over Scottish democracy, folded up his little red folder and removed the threat to interfere. And in some ways, the, the contributions from the people who aren't natural SNP allies were quite powerful because it was quite notable just how much they were focusing in on the democracy 
aspect. This next clip is from Scottish Lib Dem, Alistair Carmichael. Can I take him to uh, paragraph number 20 in the purported statement of reasons, where it says that uh, one of the barriers that would be encountered is existing IT infrastructure. Can the honourable gentleman tell me if he's ever come a case across a case before where apparently law has to be designed to fit IT infrastructure rather than IT infrastructure <laughs> being designed to fit the law? Yes, that's the, the computer says no clause. Seems like it, sure. And Hilary Benn from the Labour Party had this to say. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Mr Deputy Speaker. That clearly, as we've heard, is disagreement about the process that is contained within the legislation the Scottish Parliament has passed. But could the Secretary of State clarify something? Because whether one agrees with that or not, the net result would be someone would be issued with a gender recognition certificate. He argues in invoking section 35 that this would have serious adverse impacts on the operation of the Equality Act. Can he explain why the same certificate issued under the 2004 Act does not have those adverse impacts? Exactly. Well, what I say to the Honourable Gentleman, what we're trying to do here is avoid two different regimes which conflict either side of the border. Net result of which is that in either case a certificate is issued. Yeah. And that's the end of the story. And, and that actually was quite interesting because that was where he switched his argument to, ah, oh, but we can't have two different systems, which is a completely different thing to what Section 35 is all about, which is you've passed something under a devolved parliament that has an implication for reserved matters. It's not because it's different either side of the border. But again, it, it's, I mean, this is where the mask is kind of falling away because it's got nothing to do with the Gender Recognition Act. It's an excuse to attack the Scottish Parliament. It's testing for weaknesses, certainly. Yeah. We've had views from Scotland, Wales and England. Now let's have a view from Northern Ireland. This is Stephen Farry from the Alliance Party of Northern Ireland. Stephen Ferry. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I stand in solidarity with uh, Scottish colleagues across the, the political spectrum. It is worth pointing out that it's important that we do harmonise equality and rights issues upwards, but the UK is not a unitary state in these matters. The Secretary of State has jumped backwards and forwards in terms of, of describing the Equality Act as either UK-wide or Great Britain. It does not apply in Northern Ireland, just to make that very clear in terms of the, of the record. But in particular, does the Secretary of State recognise that similar legislation has been in place in the Republic of Ireland for over seven years now? And we in the UK have the common travel area with Ireland, which has reciprocal rights of freedom of movement and also in terms of social security and other areas. So if the government can manage to live with a different system of GRA in Ireland, why not Scotland? Yes, that's another good point. And quite telling that when it was pointed out to them that there are a lot of other countries across Europe and beyond, who use a system of self-ID and have GRA certificates recognised in England under English law, they've now, their response to that was, oh, we better not recognise them anymore. So it's England getting more and more regressive and sort of backing itself into a corner, really. Yeah, in an effort to not be proven wrong, they're going to 
drive themselves so far into not being right <laughs> that yeah eventually they they will just have to go back to some sort of like dark ages no no we're very clear there will be only specific unions and it will all be under god yes the handmaid's tale territory isn't it yeah uh, and also we had christine jardine who's another of the scottish lib dems certainly no supporter of independence much, Mr. Deputy Speaker. The Secretary of State for Scotland knows the value in which I hold the union, so I'm sure he will understand how difficult this is for me. But as a Scottish woman, the mother of a Scottish daughter, someone who has campaigned and continues to campaign and work for women's safety, I have heard the concerns and I have looked at every clause and amendment of this bill, spoken with MSP colleagues from all parties in the search for where it undermines the Equalities Act and the protections in single-sex spaces and others that it offers me and every other woman that I know. I can't find it. Some of the UK's finest legal minds have poured over this hugely scrutinised bill in great detail and found no conflict. But I can see where it actually guarantees that it will not challenge the primacy of the Equalities Act. So can the Secretary of State point me to the exact lines of this bill, which he feels undermines my and every other woman's rights, and justify why he is playing fast and loose with the union and really doing so much to hurt the most vulnerable people? in our society. And we'll give the last word to Kirsty Blackman, who puts Jack on the spot um, with a straight question. And you'll see from his response that he has no clue what he's talking about. Speaker, against a background of rising hate crime, my trans siblings will be horrified and terrified at the level of misinformation and lies in this chamber today. Given that the Secretary of State has had lots of legal advice on this, presumably he's also had briefings on this, could he tell us what is the effect of a gender recognition certificate? What does it entitle? someone to do. Well 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 we we believe with the with the, the, the we believe you'll see in the legals in the in the statement of reasons that there is a reduction. I made this very point very clear. So there was Alistair Jack's finest hour. A man who makes up for in arrogance what he lacks in IQ. So what happens next? This was a question which Nicola Sturgeon was asked in one of her ad hoc press conferences, which she's just started giving. Thanks, First Minister. On the GRR bill, can you confirm when the government will send a petition for a judicial review to the uh, the Supreme Court, the Court of Session? And would you consider releasing the legal advice around that case? Um, I think you're well aware of what my answer will be on legal advice. Uh, the uh, rules and uh, conventions around legal advice are, are well established and they are uh, important at all times, but I think particularly when there is uh, going to be or likely to be a, a court case, it's important that governments can uh, rely on uh, legal advice that uh, is is confidential. Um, I, I'm not able to give you the date. Uh, as I understand it, there is uh, routinely when it is judicial review uh, that we are 
uh, talking about there's a, a three-month period uh, in which a judicial review can be intimated. Obviously, we are you know looking at all uh, angles around that and preparing uh, all that you would be expect us to be preparing and looking at all options. I mean, we're talking here about judicial review, but obviously we want to look at uh, all options that are available. Uh, the order, the Section 35 order, of course, is, is also currently subject to negative procedure. So there is a lying period in the House of Commons uh, for that. So the process around that is not yet completely uh, finished. But we will update you um, when appropriate about the, the timing of the steps that we will take. So what other options would those I, there, there may be none. I'm just, you would expect us to look. This is the use of a Section 35 order, as was being commented on extensively last week, is unprecedented. Um, there is no uh, precedent to look at in terms of how to challenge that. It's not laid down in the, the statute. So maybe there are no other options, but we are looking to see whether that is is possible. I should say, um, you know, there are two, in, in my view, there are two reasons for challenging this. They are related. One is, of course, to uh, allow the, the, the legislation scrutinised, consulted on and passed overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly by the Scottish Parliament to be given royal assent and to uh, come into law. Secondly, though, even if you didn't think that was important, and I do think that is important, there is, I think, a real public interest now in getting uh, some interpretation, judicial interpretation of Section 35 and what are the circumstances in which it can be used, can't be used, what tests need to be passed, what evidence does the UK government need to put forward? Because at the moment, similar to the, the, the case law that we now have around the reserve devolved split where there are, are grey areas that we, we can look to case law to see what side of that a particular proposition uh, and proposed act of parliament might might follow and we don't have that with section 35 so right now as things stand as was demonstrated last week uh, this is a, a power that can be used pretty much on the whim of the UK government any time they have a political disagreement with the, the Scottish government on a piece of legislation and they can find a spurious ground to invoke Section 35. That seems to be what uh, can happen. Um, the last point I would make is, you know, it, it was put to me last week, but it's only been used once in 25 years, so it will be used sparingly. Our experience suggests the opposite. So the, the UK government breaching the Seoul Convention it didn't happen in the first 20 years of the existence of the, the Scottish Parliament. And our experience is as soon as it happened once, since then it has happened several times. So I, I think once uh, the UK government gets over that first time of using what was previously considered an unthinkable thing to do, our experience to date has been that they will do it more and more often. So I think there is a, a public interest in understanding more about the, uh, the limitations of that and obviously the topic came up at Prime Minister's questions later that week. Leader of the SNP, Stephen Flynn. Mr Speaker, to promise is a thing, to keep it is another. Well, the Scottish Government kept their manifesto promise to the people. And thanks to support from members of all political parties in Holyrood, the GRR Bill was passed. Surely in that context, the Prime Minister must recognise that it is a dangerous moment for devolution when both he and indeed the Leader of the Opposition seek to overturn a promise 
made between Scotland's politicians and Scotland's people. Mr Speaker, let me be crystal clear that the decision in this case is centred on the legislation's consequences for reserved matters, as is laid out in the Scotland Act, which established the Scottish Parliament, which the Honourable Gentleman talks about, and at the time supported by the SNP, this bill would have a significant adverse effect on UK-wide equalities matters, and so the Scottish Secretary, with regret, has rightly acted. Mr Speaker, let me be crystal clear. This is the Conservative Party seeking to stoke a culture war against some of the most marginalised people in society. And Scotland's democracy is simply collateral damage. And on that issue of democracy, let's reflect. Because on Monday, the UK government introduced legislation to ban the right to strike against the express wishes of the Scottish Government. On Tuesday, they introduced legislation to overturn the GRR against the express wishes of the Scottish Government. And this evening, they will seek to put in place legislation that rips up thousands of EU protections against the express wishes of the Scottish Government. Are we not now on a slippery slope from devolution to direct rule. And if you were thinking that Stephen Flynn is pretty impressive at PMQs, there was more where that came from. This question had the entire Tory frontbench cringing. Mr Speaker, may I ask the Prime Minister, what advice would he have for individuals seeking to protect their personal finances? Should they seek out a future chair of the BBC to help secure an £800,000 loan? Should they set up a trust in Gibraltar and hope that HMRC simply don't notice? Or should they do as others have done and simply apply for non-DOM status? Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, let... Uh, Mr Speaker... I'm proud of the record of this government is supporting the most vulnerable in our society. Just this winter, helping all families £900 for their energy bills, raising the national living wage to record levels and ensuring that our pensioners get the support they need. That's what this government is doing to ensure financial security in this country. I'm not sure what question the Prime Minister thought I asked, but that certainly was not it, Mr Speaker. But let's, let's be clear about this. This is now a matter of the Prime Minister's own integrity and accountability. After all, when there was questions about the Home Secretary, the Secretary and concerns about her role in relation to national security, he chose to back her. Now the Chair of the Tory party, he's choosing to back him despite a £5 million penalty from HMRC. And of course, he's seeking to protect the former Prime Minister despite his cosy financial relationship with the chair of the BBC. Is it little wonder that people in Scotland may well just consider the Tory party to be a parcel of rogues? Okay, so that is our slightly belated roundup of bits and pieces for January 2023. So thank you very much, James, for joining me on this. It makes a bit of an, an interesting discussion when there's somebody else in the studio, not just me. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. And to everybody else, don't forget you can get a podcast from Scottish Independence Podcasts every Friday. And we'll catch you again next week. Thanks for listening. Bye now. I'm a
You've been listening to Indie Jigsaw Bits and Pieces.